They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Church of God, this is the word of God. Yeah, you can go ahead and have a seat. As we were worshiping, my mind went to how worthy God is, how worthy Christ is. And I remember, I remember when Jesus was watching and, and as people gave of their money, there was a, a poor lady who went up and she put in just what she had, two pennies in our mind. And that's all she could give. And Jesus said that what she gave was worthy. So I'm reminded of that today, that as we come and we gather, we to worship God, that we come with what we have, with all that we are, because he's worthy of whatever we bring. So church, as we look today to, to God's word, I want to begin with kind of a, a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, of our elder board. Um, some of you probably already know this, but we as elders, as part of what we do on Monday nights when we meet, is that we uh, do a service review. We go over what happens on Sunday morning services. So tomorrow night when the elders meet, we'll be reviewing this service this morning. And um, our goal in that, our, our aim, what, what we're looking to accomplish is to, to make sure that the church stays on course with, with secure and correct doctrine, making sure that our church stays on course with what our mission is, what it is that we're to be about, that we, we stay on course with the four pillars that we uphold, right? And you can see those in your bulletin notes. They're down and put into practice. They're listed out in the little headings there, preaching, worship, prayer, evangelism. So we want to make sure that everything that we're doing in this church is staying on target with that mission and with those values that we hold. And so, yeah, we evaluate everything from lights to sound to, to the song selection to, to the communion cups on, on how they're placed and where they're at. I mean, we look at everything. But a part of that time especially is looked at the preaching of God's word. What's coming out from the pulpit to encourage everybody and strengthen us in the faith and grow our discipleship? Because we want to make sure. James tells us that, that not everybody should come up here and do this because they'll be judged with greater strictness, right? Not only from those who listen, but from God. And so it's a serious business, and, and we take it as a serious 
business. We want to make sure that when this is done, that it's done with holiness and reverence, that it's done in a way that encourages and equips people and helps them actually grow in their discipleship, right? We don't want someone who's just, you know, flippant about it. Someone that comes up and just tells a bunch of stories, you know, it may feel good, may feel all warm and fuzzy, may bring a tear to your eye, but then when you walk out and, and you're thinking, well, now what, right? Or someone who just gives a bunch of information, a bunch of instruction, and so fills your head with all this stuff, and, and then it's like, yeah, but okay, what do we do with all that? So a, a question that continues to come up time and again, and we've been doing this as elders for a very long time is when the preaching happens, was there application? Did it apply? Was there a step to take to say, this is what I need to do in response to God's word? Here's the reason why I share this with you this morning. If you look at First Peter's letter, when it was originally given as a letter and it was delivered to the church, the letter was read in its entirety. So even though we are breaking this thing out as each elder comes up and preaches a different section and we're spreading it out through weeks, they would receive it as one letter, as one sermon. And so when we get into this portion of, of last week and this week and a little bit more of chapter three, this is the application portion of Peter's letter. This is where he's telling them, this is what you need to do in response to being elect exiles. This is what you need to do in response to having the living hope. This is what you need to do in response to knowing that we are called to be holy. This is the application. And so there's expectations, right, of of what we are to do in response to God's word But as we look at today and we try to figure out what are those expectations, we do need to understand that some of what Peter's saying here is highly cultural to their circumstance. And so we need to look at this and see, okay, from what he was telling them, the steps that they need to do, we need to see what principle is at play that carries out through time through history, into our time here and our culture and say this is how that same principle that is driven by God's spirit to communicate the truth of who God is and what he expects of us, here's how that principle plays out in our lives. So what are those expectations, right? Peter lived in a culture. These folks lived in a culture that was uh, an honor-shame culture, and they had a very high view of respect and what respect required and what shows respect and what doesn't show respect. But if we're honest with ourselves here today, we are not a culture of respect, right? If, you know, Peter uses the example he gets of Abraham and Sarah and says, you're, you're like Sarah if you call your husband Lord. I'm going to tell you right now, if we leave this, you know, church this morning and wives, your husband says, let's go out to eat. And you say, yes, Lord. He ain't going to take that as respect. (laughs) He'll probably be picking up on a little bit of your sarcasm. But that's just who we are, right? We're not a culture of respect. You You look at children, 
In, in this area here, you know, most kids, they don't call their parents mother and father. Some do. Most don't. It's either mom or mama, daddy, dad, right? That's just because we're not a culture of respect. You don't believe me? Well, look at grandparents. How many grandparents tell their grandchildren, you need to call me sir or ma'am? No, it's Mima, Papa. And, and even, even some other stuff. I've heard that. I'm like, I don't even understand how that works, but okay. We are a culture of endearment, especially when it comes to our kids and our grandkids. Yes, we know and understand that they need to have respect. They need to know that there are boundaries. They need to know that there are rules. They need to know that there's things that they need to follow and they need to listen and adhere to. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying kids need to be wild and just do whatever they want and they make choices. No, parents have a responsibility to train their children but what I'm saying is, is how we do that, it isn't done through a lens of having a culture that communicates respect, especially in the way that we call people, the way that we name people, the way that we use titles, right? We just, we just don't have that. And so we need to look at this. Like I said, we need to look and understand, okay, what is the principle that is in this application that then applies to us today that we can then apply the same principle, the same truth of God's word. How does this, right? What is the expectation of this on us? And so that's what we're looking at. So the first thing that I want to do in looking at how do we how do we figure out what those expectations are in this? Is I want to look at these two, uh, two uses of the word likewise. Likewise wives and likewise husbands. Now, after having preached last week on be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution and spending so much time pushing that verse, I don't really want to approach this passage of Scripture pressing so much time on likewise wives be subject to your own husbands. Um, I do need to go home at some point today, and I would, I would like that to happen. <laughs> and usually it's customary for wives and ladies to go first, but uh, today, gentlemen, gentlemen, we're going to touch, touch on us first and, and what God would, would have us have for us first. So likewise, right? And that likewise is used over, and it's pointing back towards what we had previously discussed, what we previously had looked, like, looked at, what Peter had already written of being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, being subject for the sake of Christ, being subject for the sake of suffering so that we, what we do reflects Christ. So Peter is getting at, and he keeps pounding the same idea and the same philosophy that, that your conduct needs to be done in such a way that it's not drawing undue attention to yourself, but it's drawing attention to Christ. And so that's what he keeps getting at. And so husbands, here we go. Verse 7, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And here's our first point this morning regarding the principles at work 
within Peter's spirit-led train of thought. Christ-centered relationships are built on mutual respect. They are built on mutual respect. Men, Peter says that we are to honor our wives. And in an honor-shame culture, that is a big deal. To show honor, to, to lift up another, to, to show that someone has value greater than importance than that of yourself. Who else did Peter say that we are to honor? It's okay, this is an actual genuine question. I'm looking for engagement, so I'm, I don't feel like I'm the only one up here. Who, who else did Peter say that we are to honor? Mother and father, okay. Who else? The emperor, yeah, indefinitely. Now the wife is the queen, right? <laughs> everyone. We are to honor everyone. If we're to honor everyone, isn't your wife included in that everyone? Yes. So honor your wife. Show her to be who God has made her to be, right? So men, our wives are not less than everyone. And the emperor, certainly. We are to honor the emperor. And it may look different in details how we honor our wives compared to how you would show respect for someone like an emperor. But they're in the same category. Well, honor the queen, fellas. Before we get too deep in this, let me ask, are you showing honor to your wife? If you're bold... Ask her her thoughts on that. Men in training, as you younger fellas, how are you showing honor to your sisters? How are you showing honor to your mother, to your mom? Peter says we are to respect our wives. We're to show them honor. I think where things get a little confusing here is, is the How? Peter says that we are to show them honor as a weaker vessel. Now, translations, they, they vary on, on what to put here. Some say that it's someone weaker. Some say that it's a weaker partner. Others, like the ESV here, have weaker vessel just to stick with exactly what Peter wrote. But they all kind of agree on the weaker aspect, but are not quite sure what to do with the vessel. And I think that's because the imagery, it's, it's so far out there in left field with everything else that Peter's talking about that it's, it's kind of difficult to ascertain what, what he means. A vessel holds something, right? It's, it, it's a jar. It, it can hold wine. It can hold water. It can hold grains or oil. But if you say that a, a, a wife is weak at holding things, that might not be right. I mean, in fact, I don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if all of you know this or not, but, but a lot of wives have children, and they end up holding them as part of the job. So I, I think wives are kind of okay at holding things. <laughs> so that's not really what he's getting at here. And, and, and so looking for what, okay, what does this mean? What is this talking about? What is Peter referring to in, in, in linking these two and connecting these two and digging around? You know, I've read some before about you know, the history of pottery and, and how it evolved in the practice and, and, and different things, but I started looking at like first century Roman Empire pottery. And I have a, 
I have a slide. Hopefully, I, I think we can, we can look at up here. Yeah, there they are. Good. And so the different uses of the pottery kind of changed how they made it and, and, and what they did. So the one over here on, on the left we have is a, uh, probably a little bit more thinner, right? This is used for serving. They would make plates and cups and bowls and, and all those kind of things. And some of them would be decorative. They would put some, you know, some uh, interlay embossing on it and things like that and uh, intricate handles and all those kind of things. And so these, these were, were delicate and they would tend to break if you dropped it. They would tend to crack if they were used too much and, and mishandled. Right? But then the one there on the right, this big beast of a monstrosity, <laughs> it was used for cooking. And, and so it would, it would hold up under pressure and getting hit with a spoon over and over. <laughs> so these are the two, comparatively, the two vessels that you have. A weaker one and the not so weak. And so you have one that's fragile, one that's easily broken, one that needs to be handled with care. So now that I've sufficiently offended every woman in this room by calling you fragile, let me point out a very key word in, in what Peter writes here. He uses the word as. Now, if you're a grammar fan, you know that the word as and like can signify simile. That is a, a, a comparative tool to take things that are dissimilar and show how they can be alike. And really, Peter's not even talking about women here. He's talking about men. He's talking about the way men should treat their wives. And so he's saying, men, you need to treat your wife as a weaker vessel. Whether she is or she isn't, you need to treat her as such. We did some moving recently, and, and I'm always appreciative of when you pick up a box and it's written on it fragile, right? You know to take it up and to handle it with care and to set it down nicely. But I'm kind of finicky about the way I want to make sure that everything packs in and, and you can get it all in one trip. I don't like making multiple trips. Those of you that helped move, I love you. <laughs> but we try to pack in as much as we can to shorten that down. And so it's always helpful when that's written on it. But you get a box that's it's not written on fragile. And you go and you grab it and you take it and you throw it. And then something breaks inside. For those that you I helped move, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so you got to treat the box, whether the box is fragile or it isn't, you need to treat it with care. And it's less about the context of the box. It's less about what the box is or what the box stands for or what's in the box. It's more about my own actions, my own conduct, and the way that I control myself, the way that I handle others, specifically the way that I treat my wife. Men, we tend to be a, a bull in a china shop, and we go in, and we just start making a ruckus, and we're, we're head first, and we want to get after it, and we want to make things happen. And so we can be aggressive. We can be, be agitated, and we can be in your face, right? But he says, don't do that with your wife. Control yourself. Let your conduct be to your wife as if she is a weaker vessel. 
whether she is or she isn't. Young men, you're, you're looking to, to, to find someone, you're looking to, to get married, and, and, and you, you, you do all that, and, and things are you know, progressing, and you're, you're, you're loving your new, your new bride, and, 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 but you need to start, you, know, you feel like you've got to start laying down the wall, that we need to make sure that this is what needs to happen, right? And so you become to get a little aggressive with your wife. But here's the thing, you've got to be careful. You might end up with a Ronda Rousey on your hands and get punched in the face, Or you might end up with someone who is weaker and easily broken, who has past history of trauma in their life, and now you, as, your, as her husband, is putting her down and making her less than what God has created her to be, and that's on you. That's on you. That's on you that you are bringing in uh, destruction into someone else's life. Peter tells us not to do that, to be self-controlled. That's what he would have for us, to treat our wives as a weaker vessel, whether they are or not. Husbands, whether your wife is fragile or not, treat her as if she is. Control your conduct towards her to be in a way that is always gentle. Always gentle. Christ-like relationships are built on mutual respect. Okay, ladies, you ready? <laughs> Let's look at the first two verses of chapter 3 here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Likewise, for the Lord's sake, be submissive so that your life, the way you live with your husband, reflects Christ. Christ-like relationships are built on mutual respect. Live in a way that, so that when he sees you interact with the kids, when he sees you interact with him, when he sees you interact with the neighbors and the people at the grocery store, it communicates respect and holiness. But here's why. And it's not because your husband deserves it or is due it out of his position in the home. No, Peter says that even if they do not obey the word, even if your husband does not follow Christ, is not found in Christ and have the indwelling spirit of God that by your conduct, by the way that you communicate respect and holiness through your conduct, he can see a need for Christ in his life. So that when he sees the way that you live and he sees the level of respect and when he sees the level of holiness that's in your life, he begins to see a lack in his own. He begins to see a quality in you that he wishes he had. And even though he tries, even though he looks to do this, he continually fails at it. Fails to be consistent in respect. Fails to be consistent in holiness. And he starts to see that you have a power that he doesn't. And he begins to realize that he too needs a savior. 
But you know, we can, we can all get off track, man, right? So even if we are believing, even if we are following Christ, even if we are obeying and obedient to the word, at times we can get off track. Ladies, you might not know that, but I'll, I'll tell you. But your respectful and your pure conduct can, again, too, help to steer us and show us a quality that's beginning to lack in our life. We can get so, so passionate about uh, various things. Our, our interests can, can begin to, to get divided. And we start looking at this over here and, 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 and interested in that. And we start looking over this at the here. And, and we start focusing on these different things. And even in our own minds, we look at this and we become so compartmentalized that everything in this little box, everything in this little, this little sphere of ours, we think, yeah, that looks, that looks good there. And we look at this over here and we're like, yeah, yeah, work, work's going well and this and that and home. Yeah, home's doing all right and church, yep, church is looking okay. And, and, and here we got, you know, this over here, we got uh, in-laws. Maybe some work needs done there. And the wife's just over here looking at you, bounce around all these things, going, what are you doing? But the amount of respect and the holiness that you emulate from your life through your conduct can help snap us out of it. It can help wake us up to the fact that, yes, you know what? You're being more respectful and more holy than I am. And I need to emulate more of Christ in my life. And when Jesus becomes a compartment in our lives, your respect and your purity can remind us of our need to be holy ourselves, bringing the Spirit's conviction along with your respectful behavior. You know, my wife and I, we've been married for 20 plus years. And um, occasionally someone asks us for advice on, on how we do it, how we've stayed married that long, what, what our key to success is. And I know some of you folks who have been married 40 or 50 years, you're thinking, oh, young pup. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to share advice anyways. And really, this is, this is advice about advice. So anybody that ever has told you that, you know, a marriage, a relationship is 50-50, you, you got to meet in the middle, right? There's, there's got to be compromise. I'm going to tell you right now that you can go ahead and take that advice and you can throw it in the trash where it belongs. See, the problem is, is we are so self-centered and so short-sighted that, that that 50 mark, right, ends up being a lot closer to me than it does you. And that goes both ways. Now, what, what Peter's getting at here is Christ-like relationships are built on mutual respect, 100% from both people. Wives... Your conduct, your actions communicate respect and purity. Honor your husband 100%. Husbands, honor your wives exercising self-control. Respect your wives 100%. How do we do this? How do we do this? By putting on godly understanding. That is our second point this morning regarding Peter's Christ-like principles for marriage, for relationships. Christ-like relationships put on godly understanding. 
Let's look back at verse 3 through 4 in chapter 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What do we learn from this? Is it that wives are not to wear makeup or do their hair? That ladies, that you should just you know, get up in the morning, cover yourself, and go on. Don't worry about anything else, right? Viva la freedom! I mean, if you, you feel so inclined, by no means, I'm not going to stop you from living that type of lifestyle, but hey. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. Peter's not telling us that there's restrictions as far as what it is that you're supposed to wear, right? Like I said, this is a, a, a cultural application of a principle. And so what does this look like in their culture? Because Peter's not talking about brushing your hair and putting on makeup and, and adding a, a, a few you know, rings and earrings and a necklace. What he's picturing here and, and what comes up vividly in, in these people's minds, right? Where, where are we at? We're in, in, in the southern, northern, sorry, northern per- portions of what we now know as Turkey. And so the decorativeness that he's describing here is not a braided hair in the sense of, you know, pigtails or, you know, a braided ponytail or even, you know, we could even get fancy and do a French braid, right? That's not what he's talking about. No, he's talking about an ornate design of your hair that, that takes time and effort to, to really make it this thing. And then the, the, the jewelry, he's talking about beaded ornamented necklaces and, and, and chains that drape over the head and the forehead and, and go all down, down the shoulders and, and might even be interwoven with the braided hair and the, the bracelets that are covering all the arms, thick chained necklaces. And so it's this big picture of this this. This, you know, ornate woman that's just wearing all of this, this stuff. And so, ladies, you're thinking, well, yeah, I don't ever do that. Check. I'm good. <laughs> right? But the context of what Peter is talking about here, he's talking about wives who might have husbands who don't believe in the Lord. And so what he's saying is don't let the efforts that you put forth to make yourself beautiful in a way to win back your husband whose interests are divided. That the way that you adorn yourself, the way that you try to make yourself look and be more attractive so that you bring back a wayward husband is not what he's saying, but let your adornment, let what you be put on be godly understanding. Let it be that of of a quiet and gentle spirit. And the point that Peter's making is not that it would take a bunch of time for daily preparations, as I'm sure it would. And it's not really the flaunting of wealth, which it certainly is. But like I said, the context here, the reason that Peter, for doing all this, is so that when a husband's interests become distracted, when, he, when we get invested in all these different things, 
and you're standing over here and, and you're looking at, at, at us and watching us become uh, passionate about a cell phone or, or, or passionate about a, a new program or, or interested about, about some sort of a community involvement thing and, and we keep bouncing between all these things. That the point is, is don't try to win him. Don't try to get his attention by subjecting yourself to a lower form of the beauty that God has for you. Don't try to manipulate your husband based on how you captivate his interest with the way you look, the way you dress. Hold yourself in a higher point of view in that Jesus died for you and was resurrected for you, in that God created you in his image. Male and female, he created them. Don't demean yourself in thinking that your value is dependent upon this world's definition of beauty but let your value be in how God created you. You are far more beautiful than this world would give you credit for. Jesus used an illustration of a pearl with great price saying that the kingdom of God is like it. Where a merchant, he found this pearl of great price and he went and sold everything he had to purchase it. So certainly we are to learn from that, that the kingdom, of require, the kingdom of God requires the totality of our devotion. But you know, from God's point of view, the thing that he sought after, everything else, and set aside, that in the eternity of, of God's perfect harmony and, and union, he manifested himself as the Son, as Jesus Christ. And a single point in all that eternity, God felt the chaos and separation personally that exists between us and him. And he did this. He risked it all for our sake. Ladies, you are God's pearl of great price. And young ladies, if I could save you a lifetime of self-loathing, please know this. And put on this understanding early in life. And church, if I could address an issue in our our, our culture here, which is so over-sexualized that we tend to let it shape our understanding of propriety and holiness rather than God's word. I hope I've made the case substantially clear here that Peter is not concerned with the specifics of attire but with the purpose of it and therefore how things were treated culturally then can be different now so when we as as men or other women judge what someone is wearing based on our own perspective based on our own cultural upbringing the judgment that we have says more about the sin and the over-sexualized effect of our culture has in our own hearts than it does anything about the other person and what they're wearing. Yes, there's inappropriate attire, but when it looks like everything is inappropriate to us, then chances are there's more going on in our own hearts. So we should spend less time judging what the world judges, appearance, and more time loving the things that God loves, the heart, doing good. Christ-like relationships put on godly understanding. All right, fellas, back to us. Look at the first part of verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. 
Peter seems to have this pattern in this section. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Likewise, be subject to your own husbands, right? There's a pattern. But then he seems to, to, to break that pattern when he gets to husbands, and which in part is understandable because he's addressing, uh, you know, living in a culture that does not believe in God, does not value the things of God, and he's, he's admonishing them and encouraging them to live in such a way that their actions, again, don't reflect on them, but their actions reflect on Christ. And it makes sense because it doesn't bring undue confusion concerning the totality of, of God's word and how men are to lead it. But there's something here that I want, to, I want to key in on because I think it highlights how Peter, in being submissive, is still being subversive to the culture. And so he, he's, he's, he's telling them to, to submit to these human institutions, right? But in that and through that, use the opportunities you have to share the gospel, to spread the kingdom. And so I, I don't normally do this, but we've got some Greek words that I want to look at. And I don't, like I said, I don't normally do this because I, I, don't, I don't want to feel like the word is inaccessible to anyone. I don't want to, anyone to feel like I have some sort of special knowledge or I'm, I'm, you know, have some sort of authoritative viewpoint or instruction that, that you don't have or anybody else doesn't have. But it, like I said, it's helpful for us looking at what Peter has here. So we, we got those words. Yeah, there we are. All right, so if we look at the word servants in verse 18, the word he uses there is oikates. Now, what normally can be used is the word doulos, which in fact he used up in verse 16 when he says servants of God. The word there is doulos. And so Peter specifically chooses this word when he's talking about servants being subject to your masters. And this is a derivative of the word oikos, which means house. Now in our text, when he says, for likewise, husbands, live with your wives, the word live with there is one word. The word live usually is zao, but Peter doesn't use that here which he does uh, previously when he talks about live to righteousness, we're dead to sin and live to righteousness. He uses the word zao. Here he chooses the word sunoikeo, a verb, a derivative of the word house. And it very much fits in exactly with what Peter is looking to say in verse 7. So there's no, there, there's no you know, sense of like, well, this is translated wrong. No, it's exactly right. Live with your wives. It's a word that means dwell with. A, a verb that means to, to house with. To be in housing together, right? That's what the word means. But I think, too, that Peter's using this and the way that he's communicating to, to the people is for them to see and to pick up on this pattern that he has is consistent without. Even though he's adhering to cultural norms and cultural standards, which these are all conditions in their culture that were communicated not only by the Jews, not only by the Christians, not, but, but by uh, other philosophies, other cultural ideas. They all believed in this kind of idea that, that here's how a home should work. But Peter's getting into a point where he says, look, but we kind of go beyond this. 
We go beyond your understanding because, yes, not only is the husband the lead of the house, but he's also to be a servant. He's to serve. He's to serve his wife as Christ serves. Christ came not to be served, but to serve, and we are to be Christ-like. And Jesus says that if anyone wants to be the greatest, he must be the servant of all. And so, man, if we are to be the servant of all, our wife is included in that, is she not? Like I said, I think Peter's word choice here is to draw his readers' minds, even if it's on a subconscious level, to understand that the husband is to serve his wife. It's not outlandish. Like I said, we're to serve everyone. Our wives are included in that. Do we treat our wives any less than we treat anyone else? Certainly not. Now, I can hear someone say, well, that's all good and true, but a husband serves by leading and a wife leads by serving. But I tell you that Christ serves through sacrifice and submission. And he calls us men to treat our wives like Christ treats the church. So to have a Christ-like relationship with our wives, men, it is to sacrifice and serve. And it is with this understanding that we live with our wives, knowing their needs emotionally, physically, spiritually, but also knowing our needs and when it needs to, setting them aside to serve hers. But also that we know our triggers. We know what makes us want to puff up and, and push our own perspective what makes us want to be able to stand our ground and say, this is how it needs to be, we know what triggers that. So we can exercise self-control. Here's how this looks in a real-life situation. Pets. <laughs> I don't have a problem with them. I like pets. I'll pet a dog, I'll pet a cat, I'll pet a rabbit, I probably won't pet the fish. I'll hold the snake even though it doesn't like being petted. But my perspective with pets is, is not that they're bad, it's not that they're wrong, it's not that they're not good to have. I, I, I like pets, I, I just... If it comes to the point where it's me that has to take care of them, I'd rather not. My wife is of a different breed. My wife grew up in a home where she was the only child, and uh, a lot of her home life was not safe, was not healthy. And so pets for her were a place of comfort they were a point in her life where God could show her mercy and grace. And so when I come in with my bowl in a china shop attitude and perspective and tell her that, that, that we need to not have pets be such an emotional attachment to us, that's pride. It's arrogance. She hears that the grace that God put in my life is, is less than the grace that God put in your life. And she's right. 
and I need to exercise self-control. This is something that I have had to learn and relearn and be on guard against. I have to continually put on godly knowledge of submission and sacrifice to properly love my wife as Christ would have me. Christ-like relationships put on godly understanding. Here's the deal, men. God does want to do great things through you. But if you're wanting to be the great thing, know this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In your relationships, hold the position of submissiveness. And with your wife, live with her in an understanding for the sake of Christ. God, Christ, gave himself to your wife. Treat her as such. Don't just be thankful for the love and grace she brings to you and the good that she does for you, but do good to her. Which brings us to our third point this morning, a Christ-like relationships partner in doing good. Partner in doing good. Let's look back at verses uh, 5 through 6 here in chapter 3. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter uses the illustration of Abraham and Sarah, and for the people who are are steeped in Old Testament knowledge far more than what we are, knowing every intricacy of, of this relationship and how God interacted through it, it can be tempting for us to think, sure, Sarah obeyed Abraham, you know, the patriarch of the faith, But my husband is no Abraham. Maybe we are. (laughs) He'd certainly displayed some great acts of faith, right? Leaving his homeland, safety and security, to follow God wherever God would lead him. He was willing to sacrifice his own son to, to, to do what God had called him to do. But let's take a, a step back and, and, and kind of set aside our pre-understandings and look at, look at Abraham from a distance. Here's a man who's willing to sacrifice everything and everyone in his life as long as it doesn't involve him. As long as it's not his own sacrifice, his own flesh, his own suffering. And a little unfair to say of the situation with Isaac, his son, Maybe but he learned that trust somewhere. He could have learned it from Sarah. See, there was a point in their journey when they were traveling from their homeland to where God was going to show them that they were going to go through some rough areas where there were people that Abraham says that they do not fear God and Abraham began to fear these people. He looked at his wife and thought, surely she is an attractive woman. And if we go through this area, these men, these men are going to hold up a, a, a family code, but they're, they're going to they're gonna get around it by murdering me and killing me so they can, they can get to you. So he says to Sarah, do me this kindness. You don't know these men like I do. 
they will do terrible things to me to get to you. So when we travel through here, just, just tell them that we're related. And, and, and whatever happens at that point, we'll, we'll deal with, but just do me this kindness. That's kind of shady, isn't it? Prideful and arrogant, too. Right? I mean, here's, here's some people who, who, who are, are, are doing well. They've, they've, they've got land. They've got property. They've got money. They've got a lot of things going for them, right? <laughs> and Sarah's looking, what has my husband got? No job, no house. But Abraham's all focused on what they might do to him, and so, so he sends her in, and she listens. She submits not because she thinks it's a good idea. Not because Abraham's do that and she's needing to fulfill some sort of obligation as the role of the wife. No, she does it because she trusts in God. She does it because her hope is in God. And that he, she has is, is come to believe even more so that God is going to fulfill his promise. Chances are she learned this the hard way. God told her that she would have a child. And in her doubt, in her fear, in her own way, she, she came up with an idea to, to, to bring about a, a child that was not through her. But yet still, in, in their culture. But God says, no, that's not it. And so in her guilt and in, in, in her shame in that, she starts, to, she starts to realize that she can trust in God more. And so in this circumstance, her hope is found in God. And she doesn't fear what might come. And God is faithful. God shows up and God does what God does. And so that what's interesting here is Peter is taking, right, he's taking this illustration and he's taking the way that, that Sarah applied that and he's displaying that to his readers so that they can apply it in their context. And, and their context is, is in being in, in the Roman first century empire. A woman had to be tied in with a home in order to, to thrive and in some circumstances in order to survive. And so the fear then is if you have, again, an, an unbelieving husband who is more concerned about the, the social structures of everything that he's got and, and in order to find promotion and, and, and provide everything that he needs, he needs to fall in line with the cultural ideas that they have, which means Roman gods and Roman rule and all these kind of things, to have a wife who's then uh, at party with a subversive cult would be shameful. The fear is then to, to follow Jesus then risks being kicked out of the home, being cut off from provision. And so for them, for their culture, for these women, Peter's context is, is don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord. Pursue peace in your home. 
but don't shy away from the reality of the resurrected Christ. So maybe for these women in that culture, they were to pursue peace in the home and use their opportunity with other women to share the gospel. And so the gospel would spread from woman to woman. And then that woman would go home and through her respectful and pure conduct would be able to win her husband over. And even though it's not in your face, even though it's not taking charge and doing it the way a man would want to do it, there's a subversiveness of the gospel that's, that's moving through the cultural norms to change people's hearts. Remember, it's all for the Lord's sake. What ways can we operate within cultural norms to promote the gospel of Christ? Okay, men, my dudes, Christ-like relationships partner in doing good. Look at the last part of verse 7. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, whether your wife is weaker or not, right? And we show honor to our wives, whether she's a, a partner in the grace of Christ or not. We show honor as, as she is God's creation. She is a creation of God and the desire of his heart. And so we show honor to our wives as being a joint or co-heirs with us in life's grace. The truth is, is that even though Peter uses as here, he, he believes that. And whether we all believe that or not, is irregardless. We need to treat our wives as partners in doing good. God created us in his image, male and female, he created us. This means that if we have ambitions in life that we don't drag along our wives, treating them as if they are some tool to fulfill our, our needs, but instead we develop ambitions and goals, we develop dreams together. There is no life distinction of his and hers. You do things, you know, you go do things that you care about, I'll do things I care about, and then, then we'll meet up at home and, and have some sort of togetherness there. No, we're partners in life. We're heirs together in the grace of life. This doesn't mean that you're always together, right? It doesn't mean that, that you have to do everything together, that you can't go do something here and there, that's not what he means here. And it certainly doesn't mean that the wife sets aside all her dreams and ambitions and desires just so that the husband can fulfill his. Christ-like relationships have mutual respect. Christ-like relationships put on godly understanding and Christ-like relationships partner in doing good. And in Christ, our togetherness is, is upgraded. There is not Jew or Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. In Christ, we are one. So men, treat your wives accordingly. That you may experience life together and according to Peter, so that your prayers will be answered. Worship team, I'm going to go ahead and ask you guys to come on up to begin preparing to lead us in our final song as I 
offer this final hard word from Peter. And this is a hard word, men. It may be that if we're seeking a promotion and we did not get it, we need to check to see if we're promoting our wives. It may be that if we wanted to have more influence among others, but they weren't listening, that we need to check to see if we're listening to our wives. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If in our relationship with our wife, we are not being Christ-like, if we are not being submissive and sacrificial in how we serve them, why would we expect Christ to serve us? If we're coming at our wives with no self-control, like a bull in a china shop, why would we expect God to treat us with grace and mercy? Peter says if we're unwilling to listen to our wives, then God is unwilling to listen to us. If we're unwilling to do good for our wives, then God is unwilling to do good for us. That's a hard word from Peter. Let's pray for God's wisdom, God's grace, and the spirit-empowered nature of servant and submission. Lord Jesus, you are our shepherd. You are the one to lead us, to guide us, to show us the way. And you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we cannot come to you, cannot come to the Father except through you. And so draw us to you. Lead us away from our sin-stained hearts. Focus on what we want. Focus on I. And help us to live out you. The way you let interruptions guide your next steps to heal to bless others. The way you let your time with the Father consume you. The way you sacrificed and submitted everything so that in the end God may bring glory where glory is due. Help us to trust in that, in everything, in all our conduct. Spirit of Christ, empower us to do such things because we find it hard. We find it hard to follow you in this. But we thank you that you have given us the power to do so. So we trust in that, we rely on that. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus, our living God, our living hope, our shepherd. Thank you.